every year, every clerkship application cycle, so much ink is spilled about the best of circumstances. No one speaks about a negative experience. And I think we just need to balance out the conversation. If I had not transferred to WashU, I might be a homicide prosecutor right now. Yeah. I might have my dream job. And now it's just about encouraging both of those administrations to make the necessary changes. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I'm your host, Megan Henry, and today I'm joined by Aliza Schatzman. Um, and Aliza is a co-founder of the Legal Accountability Project, which, you know, is really trying to pull back the curtain on uh, judicial externships and internships and judges and the treatment or mistreatment of, uh, you know, legal interns in, in the, in these places. She went through a terrible experience herself, um, that she's going to talk about. And she kind of used that experience and it decided to, you know, make change with it. And that's where the legal accountability project kind of was born from, uh, super interesting. She, I, I, I can't say enough about everything that she she's done and is doing and continues to do. So with that, let's bring her in. Good morning, Aliza. Welcome to the defense of arrest. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm so happy to have you. And, um, you know, you and I talked a, a few weeks ago, um, about all the exciting things that you're, you're doing, and I can't wait for you to like come here and, and, and share it with, with my listeners, um, because you're doing awesome things. Um, with the legal accountability project and I, I want I want you to talk about that but before we like get into that um if you've listened to this podcast you know um you know everyone I have on has a different path of what they took to get where they they are today um some of us are linear some of us are bobbing and weaving some of us have had a lot of obstacles along the way um so you know I'm curious to hear you know your story and your path I mean you, you are an attorney but I, you know, as am, as am I, um, but you know, I didn't go, you know, I didn't think I was ever going to go to law school. It was not even on my, my radar um, until after law school and working for a while that I was like, oh, I got to do something. So I'm just curious how, what your path was and uh, how you ended up, you know, here. Yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I went to Williams College in Western Massachusetts. I was a golfer there and I was involved in some political advocacy work. Um, pretty early in my time at Williams, I decided I wanted to go to law school and I thought I wanted to be a reproductive rights litigator. I interned at Planned Parenthood and the National Women's Law Center. I was just really moved by the personal stories I heard, thought that I wanted to be a trial attorney for probably Planned Parenthood. Yeah. So that's what I went to law school thinking I would do. Took a couple of years between college and law school to intern and work on the Hill. And then I went to Wash U Law. Mm-hmm. So during law school, I really got the prosecutor bug, decided that I wanted to be a homicide AUSA in the DC US attorney's office. So I did four different DOJ internships during law school, uh, really got a breadth of trial attorney experience, and then decided to clerk in DC Superior Court, which is DC's local trial court mm-hmm. during the 2019 to 2020 term, intending to launch that career as a homicide AUSA. Wow. Now I'm going to say like, that's really impressive. <laughs> you had much more direction uh, th- than I ever did. <laughs> uh, so good for you. Um, and, you know, so what made you like, I want to dial it back to when you originally, when you, you wanted to go into like reproductive rights, like yeah. what fueled that passion for you? 
Yeah, I've always had a strong sense of moral outrage, especially on injustices affecting women. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of what fueled it. Um, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do kind of direct services work or more advocacy on a broad scale, but I knew that I wanted to advocate on behalf of women who didn't have a voice or whose voices were silenced. That's always been important to me. And I think a through line from back then when I was thinking about repro rights litigation to the work I'm doing now. So, yeah. Well, yeah, it does. I mean, you kind of did track, like you did your career path kind of tracked, although it it took some turns, but it's still, you're still kind of, you know, there and doing what you initially in the same sphere, I guess, of what you initially thought um, you wanted to do. So uh, tell me about your time, you know, working for the prosecutor's office. Like, what was that like? So I ended up not working as a prosecutor. Okay. Um, Sorry, I missed that. So I served, I served as a law clerk during the 2019, 2020 term. Yeah. Okay. And so Um, what was that experience like for you? Yeah. So I decided to serve as a law clerk because I thought that I would get really good, you know, experience, like assisting a judge, learning from them that I would learn from the attorneys who appeared before the court. And there's also this messaging at my law school, WashU and most law schools that like, You'll develop a lifelong mentor-mentee relationship with your judge. This position confers only professional benefits. So I kind of bought into that messaging. Mm -hmm. And I started this clerkship in August of 2019. And almost immediately, the judge for whom I clerked began to harass me and discriminate against me because of my gender. Okay. He would kick me out of the courtroom and tell me that I made him uncomfortable and that he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk. Um, yeah, he told me that I was bossy, aggressive, nasty, a disappointment. Oh man. Um, yeah. (laughs) Um, the day that I found out that I passed the DC bar exam. So big day in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, he called me into his inner chambers, got in my face and said, you're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. Wow. I, I was just devastated. I mean, I remember crying myself to sleep at night, crying on the walk to work in the morning. This was my first job out of law school. And this judge seemed to just be singling me out for mistreatment. I wish that I could be reassigned to a different judge, but my workplace didn't have an employee dispute resolution or EDR plan that might've enabled me to be reassigned. I confided in some attorney mentors and some other law clerks who advised me to stick it out. So I did. Mm. And we eventually transitioned to remote work during the pandemic. In March, I moved back to Philly to stay with my parents. And I worked remotely for six weeks, during which time the judge basically ignored me. Calls, texts, emails, nothing. And then he called me up in late April of 2020 and told me he was ending my clerkship early because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him, but he didn't want to get into it. And he hung up on me. So I called DC Courts HR and they told me there was nothing they could do because HR doesn't regulate judges. They said law clerks and judges have a unique relationship. And then they asked me whether I knew that I was an at-will employee. So I reached out to my law school to WashU for support, advice, assistance. Found out this judge had a history of misconduct that law school officials, including our clerkships director and several professors knew at the time I'd accepted the clerkship, but that they decided not to share with me. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like because they just wanted another student to clerk. Yeah. So after all this, it took me like a year to get back on my feet. Um, I did eventually secure my dream job in the DC U.S. Attorney's Office as a prosecutor. So I moved back to DC in the summer of 2021, and I had started working at the DC USAO. I was two weeks into training, and I received some pretty devastating news that altered the course of my life. Um, I was told the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance, and that my job offer was being revoked. Oh, my God. Um, and I just remember tearful conversations on the phone with the USAO, with some mentors. A couple of days later, the USAO extended an offer to interview for a different job with the office, but that offer was also revoked based on the judge's same negative reference. At this point, I was two years into my legal career, mm-hmm. and this judge just seemed to have limitless power to destroy my career. Mm-hmm. So I filed a judicial complaint with the DC Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure. I hired attorneys and in the summer and fall of 2021, I participated in the investigation into the now former judge. And we were partway through that investigation when I found out separately from some folks who reached out that the judge was on administrative leave pending an investigation into other misconduct at the time he filed the negative reference about me. But the USAO wasn't alerted of this until pursuant to the terms of our private settlement, separate from anything the judiciary could have done for me in January 2022, the former judge issued a clarifying statement to the USAO addressing some but not all of his outrageous claims about me. But at that point, it had been too long. The damage had been done, and I'm pretty much blackballed from what I thought was my dream job. There's a lot, a lot there. Um, But I want to like, when you first started you know, t- talk, talking about your story, I want to dial back to the beginning when you go into this role looking for this mentor, you know, like you, you had been fed this idea that this was the right path, you know, you did everything right, you know, you did everything according to what, you know, you they tell you in law school, like get a big firm job or clerk, and if you clerk, you'll get a big firm, you know, they, there's these messaging that you get from your, your school, and you don't know, you're naive, you, like, you haven't done this before, so you're relying on the advice given to you, and you come into this situation, and it's like a complete opposite of what, to what you expected, and now has turned into, you know, I mean, like a living nightmare, it sounds like to me uh, that you, 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 you know, you had to, you know, weather at a time that, you know, is when I'm sure like a lot of your, your friends and your classmates are, you know, have the, these jobs and you're, you're sitting in, in hell, so to speak. Yep. That sounds like a good description of it. Yes. <laughs> it was awful. And like, I don't spend that much time thinking or talking about the day-to-day in chambers, but I just remember running to the courthouse bathroom every day to cry and just thinking I should quit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I didn't know what to do. There was nowhere to go. And the way I describe it, I mean, there are a few more resources in these courthouses now than there were when I was a clerk a couple of years ago. There's an EDR plan, which I think is really toothless because judges preside over their investigations into their judiciary colleagues, which makes it not impartial, not confidential, and pretty much useless. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was a devastatingly painful experience. There was nowhere to go, no one to confide in. And when I talk about it now, and I talk about these issues, especially with folks who haven't clerked, 
there is such an enormous power disparity between like Senate confirmed life tenure judges and fresh out of law school clerks in their first jobs. It makes it enormously difficult to speak out in the face of even outrageous workplace mistreatment. It's so isolated. It's just a couple of clerks and a judge working long hours behind locked doors and stressful circumstances. And in my job now, I'm interfacing with a lot of law schools. And there really continues to be on so many campuses, just this toxic, positive messaging around clerkships. One of the things I'm trying to do as I'm speaking with law schools and going to campuses across the country this year is to really foster honest dialogue about the full range of clerkship experiences. Because every year, every clerkship application cycle, so much ink is spilled about the best of circumstances. No one speaks about a negative experience. And I think we just need to balance out the conversation. Yeah. And yeah, for the few law schools that are not really wanting me on their campuses, I mean, we're going there anyway, but I think it's because they want to continue with their toxic messaging around clerkships, which yeah. is everybody has a positive clerkship experience. You know, we're blessed that only, po- we, okay, a clerkships director told me a couple weeks ago, we are blessed to work with only good judges in our circuit. All of our students have a positive clerkship experience. Talk to alums from that law school who say that's not true. But uh, they're still purveying that messaging at several law schools. Yeah. So. yeah. Do you feel that, you know, you kind of and I, I, I expect the answer to this question to be yes. But do you, okay. do you feel like you had the, like the wool pulled over your eyes and you were just like tricked? Definitely. I definitely do. And it's interesting. Like when I was a law student, I just thought our clerkships director was this nice lady trying to help me get a clerkship. And now I kind of look back on it and understand that that is not the case. But when I talk to law students now in advance of our fall programming and talking about these issues, they understand that there are enormously misaligned incentives, particularly for clerkships directors, particularly in the T14, though certainly not exclusively, where their job is to funnel as many students as possible into clerkships is the number of placements, period. Good, bad, devastating, career ending. And they're funneling people into clerkships that either know are bad or they suspect might be bad or they just don't really care. And yes, it's about kind of pulling the wool off our eyes, exposing the scope of the problem, finally getting some sunlight into these issues that are so shrouded in secrecy. Yeah. I mean, I, I know from my, my personal experience from applying to jobs, like you know, or applying to summer, like summer jobs that, that leading up to that 2L summer, even the 1L summer, I, I remember feeling very clueless. Like, and I blamed my clueless on myself. Like it was like, I, I didn't then be like, oh, well the, you know, the, whatever what the name of the department was that they were supposed to help you find jobs. <laughs> it's a career services. Right? Yes, career <laughs> services. You know, I would, I didn't, I was just like, oh, I should just know what to do and I should just do it. And I, I felt kind of clueless and I just like, just pounded forward. Whereas like, you know, when you look at it, like everyone going through this process and hasn't gone through it before and you should be relying on career services to kind of guide you through the process and I know I felt my career services department was completely lacking like no no one like what I needed was someone to be like this given your background given your grades like this would be these these types of positions are a good fit for you I didn't even get that I just applied to every single potential job under the sun and I feel like it would have been more worthwhile had I had some guidance almost like a guidance counselor to help help me through the process and I I went in completely blind um and it sounds like for for you you it would have been you know and for 
other schools too to be more forthcoming about the types of jobs you're applying to um, would be very beneficial for everyone running through the system. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple different types of career services offices I see as I interface with them directly and with the student leaders. Some are just lacking. They don't have the resources. Perhaps they financially can't afford it. They don't have enough staff. That's one issue. But the other is toxic messaging, funneling people into clerkships, funneling them into big law, and really continuing to purvey this messaging that you must accept the first clerkship you are offered, that there are only certain types of jobs we think are acceptable. Yeah, I think the messaging from career services needs to be you are at our law school to become, to pursue the job you love in a safe workplace. Right. We're going to help you facilitate that. And I think that should be, you know, the ethos in every career services office. And that's really not what I see as I'm engaging with these schools. Yeah. And why do you think it is? Do you think it's that there's just a longstanding connection with, like they want to have the, the connection with these particular levels of judiciary um, or, or, or they just, they, for the school's benefit, they want students to be placed in certain areas because it helps their over, like when other, other people are looking at the school, it helps them to say, oh, we have X amount in, you know, this level of uh, court or whatever it may be. Right. So I think it's a little different with clerkships from other jobs. So I'll speak primarily about clerkships. Um, it's two things. These law schools, their reputations are really intertwined with relationships with the judiciary. Individual professors are, career services offices are. And there's also like the formal rankings, U.S. news, and informal perceptions of law school success that are really tied to the number of placements. Law schools do have to report the number of clerkship placements, and they're very focused on that. I think at a couple of schools in particular, they're always trying to maintain or bolster the number of students they're placing in clerkships. And that comes first for some of these career services professionals. I mean, if you think about the structure of a career services office, it's a couple people, a public service person, a private sector person, and a clerkships director. They have one full-time staffer whose sole goal is to funnel as many people as possible into clerkships. And that really leads to some misaligned incentives. And I'm certainly not dissuading anybody from clerking. I wish I'd had a great clerkship experience. And when I talk to students, there's lots of people who I talk to and say, wow, you should definitely clerk but it's about ensuring a positive clerkship experience. And I think that not every career services professional is attuned to that. Some believe mistreatment in clerkships is not happening. Some believe that it's overblown or I'm overstating what is a small problem. Like that's nonsense. I mean, this is pervasive and unaddressed in the state and federal courts. And in 2022, in the wake of five years of public allegations of judicial misconduct, you know, Anybody who's burying their head in the sand at this point is really part of the problem. Yeah. And, you know, what was your personal experience with going back to your, your law school and advising them of like what was happening? <laughs> and, and you smile like, oh, I can't wait to tell you this one. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting to make news on this podcast. Um, WashU law has been one of our most challenging administrations. Um, throughout all of this. So look, I have been like hesitant to point the finger at my law school for their role in the problem because we're now trying to work productively with them through the Legal Accountability Projects initiatives. We've come back to them with concrete solutions for unaddressed issues. And WashU Law doesn't even conduct a post-clerkship survey, so they are behind many other similarly ranked schools. Um, They have been 
stonewalling, refusing to make changes, refusing to really engage. We had this enormously troubling conversation a couple weeks ago, myself and my co-founder with the vice dean who told me WashU Law's official policy is that they don't warn students about judges who mistreat their clerks. I told her that was outrageous. And it's really been a, an enormously challenging relationship. We do not think they will partner with us this year. And look, I mean, they're not the only school that is challenging and is not ready to make changes, but they're certainly a glaring example of one. And this is my alma mater. I've come back to them advocating based on my personal experience of mistreatment with concrete solutions, and they're just not at all willing to make changes. And I think that's just so sad. It's so sad for the students on some of these campuses who will not get the support and resources they need this year because their administrations just don't care. And it's not like it's like some small unknown (laughs) university. (laughs) It's it's pretty well known. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. And pretty high, like highly regarded. Um, It's been frustrating. I mean, I did not think I would spend this much time thinking and talking about my alma mater several years post-grad, but yet this is, Washi was probably the school that my co-founder and I spend the most time talking about and trying to strategize about. And, you know, it's really frustrating. It's really frustrating, but I'm not ready to give up on any school and certainly not my alma mater. Certainly not when I know they are really far behind where they need to be. Yeah. Um, So, let, let's jump into the legal accountability project because it, it goes hand in hand to what we're talking about. And, and I feel like people are listening to me like, wait, you mentioned this, but what, what's going on? So, so why don't you talk about it so then we can more seamlessly talk about what, what you're doing and how you're trying to effectuate change. Um, but, you know, h- how did you get it started? Just talk about how you got it started and, you know, the, the, the general purpose of the legal accountability project. Yeah, so the Legal Accountability Project is a nonprofit I launched with my WashU Law classmate, Matt Goodman. And we're basically seeking to ensure that law clerks have a positive clerkship experience and then extending support and resources to the ones who don't. I think of this nonprofit as the resource I wish existed when I was a WashU Law student applying for a clerkship, a law clerk facing harassment and unsure where to go for help, and a former clerk engaging in the formal judicial complaint process. So I quit my job working at a family law firm in April to get this thing up and running. We officially launched on June 1, and we are working on two major initiatives in partnership with law schools beginning this fall. And the first one is a centralized clerkships reporting database. And I should probably back up and really say, if you are a law student considering a clerkship, and I were to say to you, okay, you want a clerk, how would you avoid judges who harass their clerks? You would probably say, I don't know, or I'd ask someone. Mm -hmm. Who are you going to ask? Clerkship directors tell me that they tell students to, quote, do their research. What research are you going to do if information is not equitably available? We are trying to centralize and democratize information about judges so as many students have as much info about as many judges as possible before they make what is clearly a very important decision about their careers. Right. We are going to have law clerk alumni from the participating institutions create an account with us and write a report about their judge and their clerkship anonymously if they choose. And then if their law school is participating, their alums report into the database and their students considering a clerkship or a judicial externship can read the reports. But importantly, it's not just their alumni's reports. It is reports about 
all the judges who all the alums from all the law schools participating have clerked for. It is the best way to democratize information about judges. And what I say to law schools is no law school has a monopoly on information about judges, Mm -hmm. whether or not you conduct a post-clerkship survey, whether or not you conduct, you put it in a database. Every school has a ceiling on the number of judges they can keep track of. And it is totally dependent on who your students clerked for in the past. Yeah. So that's the database. And then we're also doing a workplace assessment of the federal and state judiciaries, which is a climate survey that'll finally answer the question, how pervasive is harassment in the judiciary? We're going to elucidate information on the types of clerks facing mistreatment, types of judges doing the mistreating, the availability and accessibility of resources in individual courthouses to address wrongful conduct, and law clerks' concerns about reporting, both to their law schools and to the judiciary. And there are a couple purposes behind the workplace assessment. And the federal judiciary recently announced they're going to conduct a climate survey after so many years of people like advocating for this, but they're not committing to release the results publicly, mm-hmm. which is a huge red flag. It's useless yeah. if you can't see the results. <laughs> right. And it sounds like they're only surveying judges, which why are you not surveying law clerks? They're the ones who are facing the mistreatment. Mm-hmm. So ours is going, we're committing to re- report the results publicly, no matter what they show. We're surveying law clerks and we're surveying both state and federal court clerks. They really just aren't the resources to survey state court clerks currently in any state judiciaries. So our our survey is better. But importantly, it's going to quantify a couple issues. First, the federal judiciary says employee dispute resolution or EDR is the catch-all solution to harassment in the judiciary. But I talk to judges who tell me I've been on the bench a decade and I've never attended an EDR training. Mm -hmm. I talk to law clerks who consider reporting and they say EDR is not impartial because other judges in the courthouse preside over it and it's not confidential. So why would I report? And then I talk to clerkships directors and some deans of career services say this too. And they say, we've never heard a negative experience. You know, all our students report a positive experience. Mm -hmm. But that's just not true. Law clerks who face mistreatment are historically unwilling to report that back to their law schools, let alone to the judiciary. So we're going to finally quantify the gulf between the actual incidences of mistreatment and the number of complaints reported. Yeah. yeah. Um, And how has the reception been that you've received, like talking to the judges? I imagine there's judges that are not very receptive to it. And that's a red flag in itself. And there's probably other judges that are pretty open to talking to you. So the response from the judiciary has actually been overall very positive. Um, It comes in waves where I'll do a podcast or write an article and a bunch of judges will want to reach out both state and federal, both district and appellate courts to talk about these issues. And they're generally very supportive of a couple things the database, because they understand that good reviews will bolster not only their reputations, but their clerkship applicant pools. So I definitely have judges reaching out and asking, when's the database going to go live? When can my law clerks report into it? I have to explain they have to go back through their law schools. Their law schools have to participate. Um, A lot of judges also say to me, either federal judges, either I didn't realize that I was exempt from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which the judiciary currently is, or nothing about me, you know, when I ascended from the state to federal bench, nothing about me changed such that I should be exempt from Title VII. So they talk about the Judiciary Accountability Act and Title VII issues as well. But overall, the response has been very positive. Um, 
I've been, I've been heartened. Some judges are reaching out to their law school alma maters and telling them that they should participate in the legal accountability projects initiatives that law students should know more about judges before they apply to them. Um, I know it's probably not a representative sample and the judges who are super hostile are probably not reaching out to me, (laughs) but uh, I'd be happy to have those conversations. And I think the judiciary, especially the federal judiciary is very insulated from these types of issues. And I suspect that many judges have never had, have never encountered a former clerk so publicly sharing a story as troubling as mine. Yeah. Um, And I think some of them just need to confront these issues. And so I'm happy to talk to any judge, no matter how skeptical they may be of the work that I'm doing. So, yeah. And also, I mean, I can't, I can't go on without saying like, good for you. Like, I mean, you went, I mean, you really took a pile like of crap (laughs) and made something out of it. And, but good for you to speak, speak out about it because a lot of people would be really, apprehensive to to do that and and because of the potential like repercussions you could you could face by being so publicly speaking out about this and but and the on the flip side since you've done this I think you've you've turned not turned things around but like you've used this very negative experience to create a positive one and hopefully a much more positive one for other people which you know (laughs) Yeah. If you want to, if you want to change, that's how you do it. <laughs> so good. That's for you. exactly how, thank you. That's exactly how I think about it. Turning something really devastating and negative into something positive for the next generation of attorneys. And it has been very empowering and healing to speak publicly. Um, and, you know, I think it's my larger goal is to change the culture in the legal community from one of silence to one of reporting there really is a culture of not only silence, but deifying the judiciary and disbelieving law clerks. I mean, when I think back on my own experience, as I was preparing to file a complaint, preparing to speak publicly, mm-hmm. various people, but mostly women attorneys, told me the right professional decision would have been not to report, that yeah. speaking publicly would tarnish my reputation. Had a couple of people say that to me in the last couple of weeks as I've been speaking at law schools, which is yeah. super troubling. Because it's a larger goal of changing the culture in the legal community. It's sad to think that there are probably some places where I couldn't work as a prosecutor after speaking out this publicly. And I hate that the legal profession is that way. We should encourage everybody to bring their full selves to work. Right. And I mean, it also, you know, bleeds into private practice too i'm sure there i mean there are similar things happening behind closed doors at large firms medium-sized firms small firms you know it is that on your horizon too or is that just too big (laughs) too large of a a a a fight to launch for you (laughs) so it's definitely something we're approached to tackle and something we think about Um, Yeah, I think it's about encouraging a culture of reporting in every workplace. I would differentiate that uh, law clerks are not protected by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, whereas attorneys at firms are. So there are places they can go to report, seek assistance, seek legal redress. But I think in every profession where there is an enormous power disparity, issues arise, and it's about empowering people to make the right decision for them. And I certainly hope that decision includes reporting and finding a better situation for themselves. Nobody deserves to be mistreated at work and it really eats away at you if you yeah. let it go on. Um, and 
like we should really be thinking of every employer as running a workplace and not running some sort of like fiefdom, um, whether it is the judiciary or a private employer. Um, if you are not treating your employees with respect, you should not be an employer. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, what sort of feedback or discussions have you had with like some of your other classmates, um, that, you know, hear what you're doing now? I mean, obviously you started the foundation with, with a classmate. Yeah. I should back up. Did that, that classmate have a, a similar negative experience or heard, heard your story and was just kind of on board to launch this together? Um, he is, has been a friend since law school. So he's been with me every step of the way through this process. Um, he has, he has a background in judicial education and had some challenging experiences throughout his professional career, but I mean, nothing like mine, but he's been very supportive and we have complementary skill sets. So we work well together. Okay. Um, yeah, but it's been interesting as Washu Law classmates have been reaching out to me. Yeah. Some are former law clerks talking about their negative clerkship experience. And we are certainly encouraging those folks to reach out to Washu Law and explain why our initiatives would be important for them. And some are just classmates who are supportive. And I appreciate that. Um, I mean, I was a transfer to WashU from UNC. So I don't think I developed strong relationships with as many classmates as I would have liked. So it's interesting to have people reach out who are like, I was in your class. I don't know if you knew me, yeah. but, um, but look, we've received a lot of support from WashU Law alums. And I really appreciate that. I think it's important to explain that we receive support from alumni at lots of law schools, and we're just encouraging them to reach back out to their alma maters and talk about why this would be important for them. Yeah. Um, I mean, even at our most challenging institutions, there are allies to be found everywhere. Yeah. Now, do you sometimes um, think that, or think that had you not transferred, that maybe you would have had a different experience? Funny you ask that. I was thinking about that yesterday. So we're recording in late September. I was at UNC for a legal accountability project event a couple of days ago. So I, yes, I definitely think if I had not transferred to WashU, I might be a homicide prosecutor right now. Yeah. I might have my dream job, which is really hard <laughs> to realize. I mean, there are reasons why I transferred and now it's just about encouraging both of those administrations to make the necessary changes. Although I'm also a, like a, a believer of, you know, that that may have been your dream job, but this might actually be your dream job. You just didn't know it at the time. And maybe you had to go through this really shitty experience to get there. And that sucks. Um, but you as we just as I said earlier, you've tur you turned it around. So, you know, I don't know, like I, I think about that sort of thing, too. Like, oh, had I not had I done this, maybe I would have been here differently. Uh, but maybe you're exactly where you're supposed to be. I've definitely, I thought that too. And people have suggested that to me. Um, I mean, I, I really enjoy the work I'm doing now. This is what gets me up every morning, but you know, I dreamed of being a homicide AUSA for five years. It was everything I worked for, everything I sacrificed for. And now I won't do that. And I guess it's just about explaining to people, regardless of what your dreams are, you should be able to pursue them. Right. And no employer, no judge should be able to just derail somebody's career like that. They shouldn't yeah. have such enormous power over our lives. And some of it is power the legal community continues to confer upon these judges. So. Yeah. So do you find that you have um, current students reaching out 
to you and utilizing your resources and um, like looking to you for advice and things like that? Yeah. So right now where we are with the resources, our database is a working prototype that we're demonstrating for law school deans and administrators as we're visiting law school campuses throughout the fall. And we will be announcing our law school partners in late fall, having alums report into the database, and then it'll go live in the spring 2023 for law students considering a clerkship to read the reports. So I spend a lot of time speaking to law students. We're visiting like 30 campuses throughout the fall. A couple of events are now Zoom, which makes it (laughs) easier, but we're having a lot of these conversations. And students definitely understand that these resources are urgently needed are encouraging us to come to their campuses and talk about this, are encouraging their administrations to participate. So yeah, and I receive a lot of outreach from current and former clerks asking when the database will go live so they can report into it. And I would just encourage anyone, whether they had a positive or negative experience listening to this, if you think that these resources would be valuable to you or to your alma mater's current students, you should reach out to your law school and tell them to participate. Yeah. Have you um, seen any surprising, and I don't know if you'd be surprised by anything at this point, but have you, <laughs> have you seen any surprising um, reports? Um, you mean from folks just reaching out to me or? Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if they're surprising, but you know, I see a couple things. Some of our most challenging law schools, there's a handful of about five who are pretty hostile to us. <laughs> And I received disproportionate outreach from their alumni reporting on their negative clerkship experiences, sometimes pointing the finger directly at the clerkships director and saying my law school didn't care. And so I, I think that's interesting. I receive almost equal outreach from male and female clerks okay. talking about male and female judges. And I think that's interesting and something our climate survey will seek to quantify, but like neither men nor women are exempt from these problematic behaviors, just like neither Republicans nor Democrats are. I mean, I've received a lot of support from some pretty conservative judges. And I always like to underscore that both Democratic and Republican judicial appointees mistreat their clerks, Mm -hmm. both liberal and conservative clerks face harassment. So I don't know if anything has really surprised me, but definitely the the breadth of support and the breadth of negative experiences, I think are both important to point out. The breadth of support as I'm talking to law schools, like, I think nobody wants to be the first to go in on these, you know, pretty big initiatives, but somebody has to, and just underscoring that there's support from judges, there's support from like the breadth of folks is important. Um, and like the last step before a law school come on board is like convening judges who are alums to talk about these issues, which is interesting. Um, so yeah. And I think it's, it's underscoring the scope of the problem is important too, especially for people who think this is not a huge issue or the judiciary is making changes. The judiciary is really not making any changes. I mean, they, and yeah. One thing that I'd be curious about though, so sometimes it's not, or, or, or do you see sometimes it's not necessarily the judge, but the staff that is under that judge that could be, perpetuating the mistreatment. Have you, have you encountered that? We have, we've received some outreach from law clerks talking about a courtroom deputy who mistreated them. Yes, we do see that. And that's troubling too. Um, And we hope that our database will eventually be able to house those reports as well. So, yeah, because I, I just know from my, my experience, I did like a judicial externship and, and 
the judge I worked for was amazing and the staff was really good too, but you have the staff that's been working there for, you know, a number of years and they are very comfortable in their, their role. I could see how things could um, perhaps get out, you know, out of hand, or you could slip through the cracks in, in that type of setting. Some of these people, you know, they work there. I mean, that's been their, you know, they've worked there for 10, 15 years or whatever, and they could be perpetuating the problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it creates a complex dynamic whereby sometimes a law clerk will reach out to a judge who is their boss and they, they trust and the judge won't do anything, won't discipline the courtroom deputy, for example. We hear that sometimes. So, but then it's also like permanent courthouse employees are also not protected by Title VII. So they face similar concerns about whether to report using the EDR plan because they'll have to continue working in these courthouses. So there is just, it's really important to underscore the judiciary, the federal judiciary and state judiciaries are enormous employers. They have a broad like scope of folks working in different positions and these problematic behaviors just continue to occur. We really just need to make some workplace changes to protect everybody or Um, discipline whoever is doing the mistreating. Yeah. Well, and I do, I recall that when I, when I was in my position, there was another a, a staff clerk who waited until I was done with my externship to then ask me out. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so Lacey waited. <laughs> but still, that's like pretty, I don't know, pretty, I, I guess waiting is good, but still, I find it a little inappropriate. I didn't go out on that date. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so one of the, one of the things I think about too is you know, so you're doing a lot, you're pounding the pavement, you are traveling, like, how are you funding all this? It's a good question. Uh, I think about fundraising a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It's a stressor a lot. Um, You know, we're right now being funded by large dollar donors. We're very appreciative of, you know, wealthy individuals who are willing to support us. Eventually, we will seek grant funding. We're still obtaining our 501c3 status. Um, so large dollar donors are a big source of funds right now. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, it takes some money to get this thing up and running. The database will be a subscription model, so it will be self-sustaining. The money we raise can go toward our other initiatives. Um, I don't have, I mean, I, you know, interned and volunteered at nonprofits, but I don't really have a nonprofit fundraising background. So I'm learning a lot about how to yeah. pitch to donors and have those conversations listen to a lot of nonprofit podcasts for advice, (laughs) which is probably not the best way to do it. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I like explaining to donors why these issues are important. It's hard, but I think we have a great founder story and it's clear why me and why now. So it's just about getting in front of the right people. I mean, we're always looking for more support if people are interested in supporting us, but you know, like these are, it can sound like a very niche issue, like talking about law clerks. Well, not everybody's a law clerk and certainly not everybody's an attorney, but this is like a larger pipeline issue. Mm-hmm. Today's law clerks are tomorrow's public defenders, prosecutors, professors, and judges. And when we think about who is doing the decision-making and who's you know, writing some of these decisions we perhaps don't like, well, it's a lot of, li- it's a lot of white men mm-hmm. and it's a lot of white male law clerks. And why is that? It's because non-white folks, LGBTQ folks, women, these historically marginalized groups face disproportionately the mistreatment during clerkships and are driven from their dream jobs, 
driven from the profession. We cannot have a better judiciary, a better legal profession until we clean up our judiciary. So. Yeah. Um, and what has been one of like the surprising challenges that you faced? It's a good question. <laughs> um, because you've had to learn it all. Like you kind of had to learn it all. You yeah, know, we, and- we build the plane while flying it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I think it's always an adjustment when people tell me no and how I handle that. Um, and I think I'm still learning and I appreciate that my co-founder is very supportive. He'll be either on a zoom with me or he'll get on the phone with me. We can talk it through after. Um, I think I, I still take things personally when someone says no, whether that's a donor, but more importantly, if it's a law school dean who's saying they're not ready to make changes right now, everybody has a positive clerkship experience, things I know to be nonsense. Yes. I find that really sad and frustrating and I take it personally. And I think it's, you know, teaching myself to be able to step back and not get upset. Or if it's my co-founder and I on a Zoom with some deans to let him step in while I collect myself. Um, so I think I'm, I'm still learning that, you know, I've been really, I've been surprised by the number of law schools that are very willing to engage with us, mm-hmm. but I've also been surprised by the hostile handful who have been very unwilling to engage. Yeah. And I think it's, it's some law schools that might surprise people. And it would certainly surprise the students at those law schools to know the amount of information that some of these law schools are really concealing from them about judges, about their resources. Um, Yeah. I think that's been really sad. I've learned a lot about law school administration and the intricacies of each one. Um, So that's been a learning curve, but. And I'm sure it's been eye-opening too, to, to really. Enormously. Yes. I did not realize, I mean, when I was a law student, I didn't realize the intricacies of our administration and, you know, who, who needs to approve certain things and why things are approved or not approved and the budgetary constraints. I didn't really realize that now I do. So, yeah. 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 I was going to say like, what, what are some of the other um, things that you've, you've learned about the administration of law school of law schools through this process? It's a good question. There are definitely some law school administrations that are not responsive to student needs. Um, I see that when I engage with them, but more importantly, I hear that from the student leaders at several places we've already visited. Um, You know, as we're going to all these law schools where I share my story, talk about the scope of the problem and talk about solutions, we really see it as tied to our initiatives and a way to galvanize student support. And students are very willing to go to their administrations, but they also say, you know, some of these administrations, not super responsive to us. So that's really frustrating. I mean, we are offering concrete solutions for like radically unaddressed issues. And the subscription model is $5 per student per year. It's a couple of thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. We know these law schools can find that money under couch cushions. Yeah. We've had a couple of professors at our events say in the room to the clerkships director, you could find that under a couch cushion if you really wanted yeah. to participate. Um, so I think that's been eye-opening what law schools are really willing to support and what they're not. And you know, some people have said, and I think this is insightful, If a law school says no, they might say it's about the money, but it's never about the money. Mm -hmm. It's really just about caution or fear. Mm -hmm. And it's fine to be cautious if you're protecting your students, but they're really being cautious at the expense of their students. 
Right. <laughs> I mean, if you're looking to protect your students, it's more to, to dig into this rather than avoid it and turn the other way. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, we are, we are just about out of time, but I want to make sure um, you let everyone know if they want to donate to the Legal Accountability Project, let them know how they can do that. So, you know, anyone who's interested and just so they can learn, you know, find out more about about you and every everything that you're doing. Yeah, so if folks are interested in supporting us or learning more about us, our website is legalaccountabilityproject.org. They can go there to sign up for our mailing list. We email, we try to email every week um, and they can donate there as well. I'm pretty active on social media, on Twitter and LinkedIn, finding you can find me using my name, Aliza Schatzman. Um, and I post about these issues pretty much every day. So I just really encourage people to get engaged, think through how these issues might affect your life in ways you don't realize yet. But um, it's an underaddressed issue and really trying to start an important conversation. And if you are an attorney and you think what I'm talking about is valuable and your law school should participate, I'd encourage you to reach out to your career services dean, your clerkships director, and tell them they should support the Legal Accountability Project. Well, I appreciate every, everything you're, you're doing. I, I'm sorry you had to go through such a terrible experience to get there, but I am very appreciative that you, you really have utilized that experience and tried to turn it into a positive to help, help others. I think that speaks volumes to who you are. You're not, I, all, all those terrible things that that judge said about you, I, I could say they don't seem to be true. <laughs> so and I'm glad you didn't take it to heart that this person was saying those nasty things to you because you, you've really done a, a lot with, you know, getting a, you know, a, a, a bag of crab apples, I should say. <laughs> I think, I think when a judge mistreats a clerk, it says more about their poor character than the clerks. And so I always try to tell that to law clerks to reach out to me to talk about this. I mean, I, that's something I say to my kids all the time too. Like if they're like, someone is being nasty to them, I'm like, you don't know what's going on. And a lot of times when that happens, it's, it, it is more so with them than anything that, that you are doing. It's a good lesson for kids. And it's a good lesson for attorneys too. <laughs> yeah. I think every, every individual could take something from that lesson. <laughs> you yeah. never know what's going on with, with someone. And it's hard though, because it gets in your head and you can't ha- help but have those negative thoughts kind of infiltrate your own thoughts and question, you know, what's, what's true and what, what's not. So I think having a reminder of that is always important. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for, for your time today and, and, and sharing your story and everything that you're, you've done to, you know, from that negative experience and, you know, thank you, thank you for doing it and and keep going. So, and I hope, you know, for my listeners out there, if you, you know, if this is a, a cause that you're willing to donate to, I encourage encourage you to do do that. Um, and of course, you know, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to the Defensive Arrest on Apple Podcasts. And you can also find us at TDNR Podcast on YouTube.